You are listening to the podcast from Mosaic Church. Stay tuned after it for more info about how to get and stay connected with our church family. Now, let's dive into this week's message. Happy Father's Day. Just want to say hi to my dad. I believe he's watching at home. It's a big, actually big Father's Day for my dad. He, yesterday, yesterday he and my mother celebrated their 50th wedding anniversary. How about that? It's a big deal. And uh, congratulations to him. Love you, dad. Uh, What an example. Also, second thing before we get going, this past Thursday, right here on this stage, Mosaic Church, we were honored to host the 144th class of cadets from Austin Police Department, from APD. Um, They invited us to be a part of something they're doing called Community Connect, whereby in the first two weeks of their new classes, uh, cadets training, they orient them by connecting them with specific communities. Uh, We were the last community to be connected with them, the faith community. And so right here, myself, two other pastors from around the Austin area, uh, we were panelists hosted, uh, it was moderated by Dr. Rosalind Smith, one of our staff pastors here, and we were able to give our perspective as to the role of law enforcement in general, speaking to the future of law enforcement in Austin, and to be able to talk about some, a couple of tough spots, obviously, we've all been through. Uh, in the end, though, it concluded really well. We actually exhorted them, in the end, to come to faith in Christ. Prayed for them, also blessed them, honored them. Uh, and afterward, a number of the cadets said it was the favorite one they had been to. Of course, it was probably because that was the last one. So they didn't have to go to any more. They could get on with their training. But we were asked again to participate in the future. So that class of cadets, uh, the Cedar, Cedar Park chief of police, his command staff, a number of other officers from APD were here. Uh, it was a big deal. So anyway, I want to let you know that it went really well. Cool opportunity. And there you go. How about that? All right. Uh, okay, sermon, message. Here we go. Uh, scripture reading is going to be from second, excuse me, first Peter chapter one. Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. Since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors. That with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect, he was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him. And so your faith and hope are in God. Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth, so that you have sincere love for each other, love one another deeply from the heart. For you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. For all people are like grass and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word that was preached to you. Amen. Amen. Uh, We're sort of near the tail end of this series, almost through it. We've been looking at what it means to follow Jesus Christ through the lens of the life of arguably his most famous follower, 
Simon Peter. And Peter is that guy. And so far we've seen Peter's inner life. We've seen his actions through the writings, through the words of others. But today and next week, we're going to look at him through his own words, through a couple of letters that he wrote to the early church. And so the reason that Peter writes this letter, we're taking a look in brief at it today, what we call 1 Peter. The reason he writes this is simply to help you, to help me, to help us and them and every person who's ever lived do something better that we all struggle with at some point, which is this. We all struggle with handling life well, do we not? Because life ain't easy. I mean, I don't care how much money that you have. Money does not, will not, cannot rescue you from every problem. I don't care how much money you've spent on that surgery. Eventually, time plus gravity takes over. Just letting you know. No matter how much you work out, and you should, you are only prolonging the inevitable. Life is hard, and life is hard to handle. Suffering is common. Life's not easy. And Peter knows it like you and I know it. And so he's writing to you to help you handle life better. Handle your children better. Your relationships, your job, your boss, your emotions. So how can you do that? Hmm? That's my question. How can we handle life better when life is hard to handle? So 1 Peter, a lot of it's all about. Now, Peter, Peter, now I'm warning you right now that you may not like his answer, okay? But I'm hoping that in 25-ish or so minutes from now, I hope you feel differently if you'll just give me a chance. Give me a chance, all right? Peter's about to tell us, here it is, that the single key to handling life well as a Christian is something he calls holiness, Something called holiness. He writes this, verse 15, but just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do, for it is written, be holy because I am holy. Holiness is the key that Jesus' most famous follower gives us to help us handle our lives well. Now, time out, because right there, the referee in your brain, the, the guy or girl with pinstripes in your mind, just threw the flag out on the field. Just called the time out, right? Hang on, hang up on the holiness bit there, Morgan, because you, if this is you, you may be having, a lot of people do, one or more of these reactions, straight up reactions to the idea or the, uh, the, uh, the uh, uh, concept of holiness. You may have, for example, you may have like a weirdness reaction to that. As in the word holiness, it sounds weird. I mean, come on, face it. When's the last time you heard somebody on your chat thread or your Twitch stream drop the word holiness? Thank you, all the parents in the room of teenagers know what I'm talking about right there. You may be having a religious culture reaction to holiness. Why? Because we're going to look at all the abuse of this word doctrine in the past, right? Because sometimes, come on, religious leaders can say the word holiness when they really mean Control. Third, you may have like a personal reaction, as you know. You know, you, you know this. If you lived a so-called holy life, if you really were sold out living for God, it might just cost you your reputation, some street cred with your job, your girlfriend, your boyfriend, maybe. You may be having a cultural reaction, as in you and I may object to this idea of holiness based on the signature sauce that drenches American culture, which is this. We want our moral freedom. Hmm? We don't want anyone telling us what to do, even if they're right. 
And yet, I want to appeal to us all for just a few minutes. Leave all four or more of those at the door. All right, can we do that? Leave all four or more at the door because after all, the greatest human, come on, who's ever lived, the greatest human with the greatest relationships, made the greatest impact with his life in only three-ish decades of existence, Jesus of Nazareth was a holy man, holy person. And he was completely normal. He, he loved others you and I may not want to love or get up next to. He was totally holy, yet totally relatable and accessible. He handled his life well. He was holy in all he did. So how is that? Why is that? Let's try to see. Today, here's my encouragement for us. Let's try to follow, based on Peter's path, follow Jesus into holiness. Okay, follow Jesus into holiness. What is holiness? Going to try to define, shape your thinking in three ways. First of all, it's telling a better story. Number two, it's holding a divine tension. And finally, it's embracing a better reason. There's something to tell, something to hold on to, and something to pull close and to embrace, all from 1 Peter 1. Let's get going here and look at what it means to tell a better story. Okay, how does the Bible, what Christians call the Bible, Hebrew, Testament, uh, New Testament, how do we define, how does the Bible define holiness? Well, a clue can be found just from that single verse Peter picks up and pulls out for us. Because when he tells us in verse 15, just as he who calls you is holy, so be holy in all you do, for it is written, be holy because I am holy. That verse there in quotes is from the book of Leviticus, chapters 11 and 19. And for a lot of people, this may be you, Leviticus is kind of like the Hotel California of Bible books, as in like you can check out anytime you like, but you can never leave, right? As in you get stuck there. You go in, but you don't come out. And I know this because every year people say to me, Morgan, I'm going to read through the Bible in a year. I say, great idea. They say, I'm going to start in Genesis and work my way all the way through front to back. I say, bad idea. Because you start reading Genesis, right? You love it. Lots of stories. We love Joseph. Go Joseph, right? Joseph's so great. And you get to Exodus, right? That's pretty cool. Moses, right? I mean, born in a river. I mean, special effects everywhere. You know, seas and plagues and fire and smoke, right? Then you get to the third book. And it all comes to a screeching halt. You can hear the gears, right? Where did the story go, you say? Bring back the characters and the drama. Morgan, I'm dying faster than an Israelite in the desert with no water, right? Only laws, commands, moral imperatives. What's going on? going on is this. Clue is in the title of the book. The title for Leviticus in the Hebrew, translated, literally means, and he called. And he called. And he called. Leviticus was a book for a post-Egyptian slavery, post-servitude, pro-liberation people. Leviticus was a book for a people who had been freed from slavery and were now called out into the freedom of life to worship God. And so over and over and over in the book, as the free people of God, God says to them, oh, be holy in all you do, for I'm holy. Here's the funny thing. Here's the funny thing. God doesn't just tell the people to be holy. He says stuff like the animals are holy. The spoons are holy. Candlesticks, curtains in the tabernacle. That was like their outdoor tent where they had the worship service. Those things were holy. Oh, and right there, right away, we get a far better, way more expanded view of holiness than perhaps what you were thinking 
or perhaps what you've been taught. Because how can a spoon be holy? Come on. How can a candlestick be holy? Because a candle can't do anything wrong, right? I mean, a spoon can't misbehave. It's not like you go and say to your spoon, you've been a naughty spoon this week. Be a good spoon or mommy's going to stick you in the back of the drawer. You know, no, you don't do that. It's right away. It tells us this. Holiness is only secondarily about the stuff you do. Holiness is secondarily about morality, it's there, but holiness is primarily about purpose. The reason those spoons, candlesticks, curtains could be called holy by God is because they were set aside by him, set aside for him. They were set aside for an uncommon purpose, and that's what holiness means. To be holy is to be set aside for an uncommon purpose and to tell a redemptive story. In other words, to be holy is to be set apart for the purposes of God. Now, humans, come on, we do this in our own way, right? Uh, Let me give you a couple of examples. About, About four miles off the coast of Cape Town, South Africa, beautiful city. If you you ever get a chance to go, you should. Uh, Four miles off the coast is a place called Robben Island. Robben Island, and it's famous for a number of things. It's got a penguin colony there, pretty cool. Uh, It was used as a defense against the Nazis in World War II. It's got some history. But it's most famous for being the home of the maximum security prison where Nelson Mandela lived for 18 years of his life. Now, actually, it's not a prison at all. Now, you can actually go visit it. And this was his cell. This was Nelson Mandela's cell where he lived for 18 years. No one stays there. No one lives there. It just is. What is just walls, stone, a small window, some jail bars is now a kind of a holy place. Right? It's set apart for an uncommon purpose to tell a redemptive story. Example number two, New York, the World Trade Center Museum. If you go, you'll see this. This is a watch. This watch belonged to a man named Todd Beamer. Some of you may know Todd Beamer's name. He was one of the victims of United Flight 93. He was a part of the group that charged the cockpit. On September 11, 2001, after it had been hijacked, he, he brought the plane down. He killed him, all the passengers on board, but it saved hundreds, maybe thousands of lives. You know, his watch formerly just a value to him, is now on a display in a museum. Now, when you go there and you see that watch, you don't see it just as a watch, do you? No. You look at it, what? Differently. Reverently. Maybe a little bit worshipfully. It's beaten to pieces. It doesn't tell time. It's stuck with the number 11 there in the date date little place. The watch itself is valuable. Why? Because of the story it tells. The common watch has been set apart for an uncommon purpose to tell an uncommon redemptive story. The watch itself tells the story of the actions of the one who gave it meaning by his death. And in the same way, Peter is telling Christians here in his letter, living in a post-Easter, post-resurrection world, the same thing that Moses told the people in Leviticus, living in a post-Egypt world. You have been set free to live for God. Therefore, to tell the story of that, of the one who gave you freedom and meaning, be set apart for an uncommon purpose. Be set apart for the purposes of God. Be holy. Every part of your life, he's saying, Every part, everything you do is supposed to be holy. Somehow it's supposed to tell the story of the one who's saved you, 
rescued you. Let me ask you, does the way you work every day, for those of you with jobs, well, you work, tell the story of the one who saved you how you work, when you show up, your attitudes towards your coworkers, how well you, you do, how well you're, 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 you're giving, serving, no matter how much you're getting paid or not. Does your, as a parent, does your parenting tell the story to your kids, the one who saved you, right? How you love them, care for them, maybe even repent to them, huh? Does your dating relationship tell the story of the one who saved you when you play sports, when you dance, when you sing, when you create? Does it tell the story of the one who saved you? I'm gonna tell you, your schoolwork, students in here, can be holy. Those of you struggling today, your suffering can be holy. It's actually the context of Peter. Your body See, that unborn life on the inside of you, some mamas, right? Called to be holy, set apart. And when you understand now that your life is not your own, that all the difficulties you are going through today, Peter tells you, are helping you to become someone better, someone who can point now to a good God who's somehow working stuff behind the scenes for you to good. Now, you can handle life better. Life is hard to handle. That's number one. That's the 30,000 foot view. We're telling a better story. But let's go now down a level just a minute because, and we just need to acknowledge that living this out is just not easy to do. It's not. So let's look at this second. How can we do this a little bit? Well, Peter calls us while we're telling this better story to hold on to this divine tension. What do I mean? Okay, let me try to set up the first half of this tension like this. Man by the name of Charles Taylor. You may have heard of him. Brilliant British philosopher, writer. He's written a book called The Secular Age. And he says that even though we live in a secular age, we try to we try to write God not just out of our stories, but out of the story or the meta-narrative of our culture. And Charles Taylor says that. All right, no matter how hard we try, no matter how hard we scrub and try to scrub God out, he says, still, we're haunted by the holy. We're haunted by it. And the more we push God out still, the more we feel the need to try to create these transcendent, meaningful, holy moments or works of art to fill the gap. And I think he's right. Let me give you an example. Some of you may remember the name of Susan Sontag. She's sort of for a generation uh, behind a lot of us, but she was a famous writer, uh, filmmaker, social critic, not a Christian, like a secular Jew, and she died a few years ago. Okay. And her son, follow me here for a minute, her son's name is David Reef. He's also a writer, a staunch atheist, and he wrote a book about trying to process her passing, the effect that she had had on him. And it was called this, he called it Swimming in a Sea of Death. Real encouraging title right there. Some light reading for you, Swimming in a Sea of Death. And he tells the story in the book where he's flying to Paris, all right, for his mother's funeral. And he's on the plane and he's going overseas and he's starting to have these thoughts as she's about to be buried with all these famous writers in this graveyard in France. He's wrestling with this question. If there's no God, if there's no meaning to life, which he believed, why are we even having a funeral at all? Why am I flying to talk about her, honor her, honor someone who's just not here anymore? And he writes this, quote, is all of this just vain, some irrational human wish to ascribe meaning when no meaning is really there to offer? So what does he end up doing? He wrestles, he wrestles, he wrestles. He goes to the funeral and this is what he says that he did. He said, I kneel and I kiss the granite slab. Then I get back up on my feet again and I go and I'm confused and I hurry and I retrace my steps and it's not that I have nothing intelligent to say, I'm just 
incapable of thought. What's happened? Here it is. David Reef has been gripped by the holiness, by the otherworldliness, by the set-apartness of that moment, and he can't deny it's there. So he kneels and he kisses uh, the granite slab. He's left speechless before the moment. Friends, that's Charles Taylor's point, that we can scrub and mock God all we want to, and yet at some point, we all kneel and kiss some granite slab. The echoes of eternity or the ghost of the holy thing we thought we killed comes back like Jacob Marley. In change, to Scrooge's door, we're haunted by the holy. We can't live without holiness. The set-apartness of life, the desire for us to feel like our lives really matter, like it's uncommon, like we really do mean something. We're set apart. We want that to be real. And why wouldn't life be like this, by the way? Hmm? Pointer to God. Because if God is holy at his core, which he is, if he did create everything, which he did, the cosmos, the world, you and me, then everything is steeped in a kind of holy echo. You, me, a funeral, the baseball game, the sunset, the mountain range, a lioness on the hunt in the bush. It all is a kind of a holy echo we can't live without. And when we touch it, like that man at that funeral, even by accident, we're reminded we're not here alone. We're not on our own. We can't live without holiness. We deny it. But at some point, we all drop to our knees and kiss some granite slab and yet. Oh, and yet. Yet there's something more. There's the other half of this divine tension because God isn't just holy, is he? I know. In both Old and New Testaments, Hebrew scriptures, New Testament, he is described as holy in triplicate. Holy, holy, holy. He is utterly, he's beyond, he's category shattering otherness. He is holy, holy, holy. And as much as we can't live without holiness, I want to tell you, we can't live with the capital H, holiness, almighty God. Uh, I like to, some of you may know this, if you know me a bit, I like to mess around with music. I halfway play a handful of instruments. I'm that guy. And some of you know that and years ago, I used to play up on the stage, actually, on Sundays quite a lot, which allowed me to pretend I was pretty good in my own mind, right? But I gave it up, uh, music, to focus on some other stuff, like, I don't know, pastoring a church during COVID or whatever. But recently, that was a joke, but recently, uh, because my kids sleep through the night now, awesome, uh, there's this thing called the internet, Uh, you can learn anything to play. You learn to play anything, like on guitar. And so like all the songs and the solos that I wanted to learn, they're all there now. So I picked up guitar and I went back to work and I practiced a whole bunch and I was getting, you know, pretty good, feeling pretty good about myself. And then, and then one day I was walking by Seth Perez's office. Seth is our worship uh, director here. He does a great job with it. He was on stage playing an awesome guitar today, walking by his office when I overheard some guitar playing coming from a, a live a service that we had recorded. And it was so amazing. I mean, it was so incredible and, and effortless. And so I asked Seth, I said, Seth, who's that playing? And I never think I've ever heard that guy play guitar. And, and he says, oh, that's Raul. I say, as in Raul Reyes, the bassist? 
He's like, yeah, Raul's on a music team. I said, I know. I said, did you say Raul the bassist? He said, yep, the, Raul the bassist. I said, he's been playing bass for years here. You know, he can play guitar like that. Said that he can play guitar like that. I said, Seth, <laughs> I quit. <laughs> I quit. What's the point, right? I quit for the second time now. Why? I was experiencing what I think Isaiah was experiencing that day in that temple back in Isaiah 6 when God showed up and revealed himself as what? Holy, holy, holy. Isaiah said, woe to me. I quit me. I am a man of unholy, unclean lips. Why the lips? Isaiah was a preacher. He was a pastor. He uses lips for a living. And in a flash, he sees how bad his lips are, how unholy his lips are, how far even the very best part of him is from a holy God. Woe to me, he said. I am ruined. I've seen the king. See, Isaiah couldn't live with the holiness of God, right? So on one hand, we can't live without the holiness of God. It's what gives meaning to the uncommon, but we can't live with it either because it shows us how unholy, how unclean, how fallen we really are. Now, I want to tell you here, if you're reacting to that a bit, I want to just suggest to you, slash tell you, I, it's not psychologically, I don't believe it's psychologically unhealthy to think that about yourself, okay, or to acknowledge. It's actually psychologically unhealthy it shows you're psychologically unhealthy if you can't acknowledge your imperfection. You know who can't acknowledge they have a problem? Addicts, right, some sort. Those who can't put down drugs, alcohol. What's the first step? Come on. In every 12-step program, it's to acknowledge we cannot save ourselves. We are not okay on our own. The first step on the road to true psychological health, real relational stability is to acknowledge our unholiness. This is what Christians actually have traditionally called repentance. Repentance. Because it's the insistence that we are fine, we're okay how we are, that prevents us from really growing, really becoming our true selves. A writer by the name of David Brooks, again, not a Christian, wrote this a few years ago in the New York Times. He said this, he said, quote, we live in the culture of the big me. About that. The meritocracy wants you to promote yourself. Social media wants you to broadcast a highlight reel of yourself. Your parents and teachers were always telling you how wonderful you were. But all the people I've ever deeply admired are profoundly honest about their own weaknesses. They have identified their core Sin. Look at his language. Again, not a Christian. Whether it is selfishness, the desperate need for approval, cowardice, hard-heartedness, or whatever. They have traced how that core sin leads to the behavior that makes them feel ashamed. They have achieved a profound humility, which has best been defined as an intense self-awareness from a position of other-centeredness. End quote. Isn't that good? See, acknowledging that we cannot live with the holiness of God in our lives actually sets us free what? to be more of ourselves and not less. So God, oh God, if we can't live, as you two saying, with or without you, what are we gonna do? We are called to be holy. We are called to be set apart. We are drawn toward the holy and yet we're repulsed by it. What can we do? How can we break through? Be holy in all we do. Number three, we've got to embrace a better reason. What is it? All right. Why should you, how can you embrace this call to be holy, hmm? to live a better story? Peter writes this, verse 18, look. He says, for you know 
Like you remember, don't you, y'all, that it was not with perishable things like money, silver or gold, that you were redeemed, bought back, purchased from your empty way of life that your parents gave you, your ancestors gave you, but it was with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. How many of you here, uh, how many of you here know the term scapegoat? It's your hands. You know the term? Yes, some of us do. Uh, Scapegoat is the term used to describe a person who wrongly takes the blame, like on a team or uh, at your job or maybe sometimes in a family dynamic. Uh, But the term scapegoat is actually from the Bible, something from the book of Leviticus, mind you, where the priests would, they would lay hands on a goat. All right? They would confess over the goat all the sins of the people, all the sins of the nation, uh, to, uh, and then they would send the goat out of the camp to represent all the selfishness, all the injustice of the people, leaving the camp through a substitute. And so I was learning about this, hearing about this, and so I looked this up, and this is true. One time, in the Jewish community, the goat came back. <laughs> Could you imagine the moment? They're like, what do we do? never happened before what does this mean like what is this what does it mean when the goat comes back what's God gonna do but do you know what they did they took that goat up a mountain and they threw it over and you're like well that escalated quickly you know (laughs) all kidding aside that is precisely what humanity has done to Jesus we took him up and we threw him over but we didn't know what we were doing. And that's why Peter has all this lamb stuff in here. He's getting at something with the talk of the, the lamb, the spotless lamb, the precious blood, the no blemish lamb. He's showing you again, people cannot be holy on their own. It always requires some kind of substitute, some kind of atonement. We can't just wash away the past. We can't just snap our fingers and the guilt's gone. The shame just evaporates. It always requires an exchange and like that spotless lamb was offered, like the goat was thrown over the mountain, that's what we did to Jesus. See, we couldn't live without him. That's why God sent him. But we couldn't live with him either. And that's why we killed him. The goat for the nation, the lamb for the people, Jesus for you, the holy for the unholy, clean for the unclean, the sober for the addict, the living for the dead, someone who became what he was not, that we could become what we were not, someone who did the impossible to make the possible possible. And so when you see that, you're gripped by that, what does that do to your heart, huh? A few years ago, just a few. Carrie and I were first married. Uh, We were starting out in campus ministry. She was pregnant with our first boy. We were so broke. We had no money and we drove this really bad car. It had no AC. Never good in Texas, right? It sucked in leaves through the vent in front. It shredded them and spit them back out on us through the vent. We called the car the mulcher. Like, who's driving the mulcher today? You got the mulcher? I got the mulcher. It would randomly, because the electrical system was bad, stop in traffic, left us stranded all over the place. And to top it off, we unintentionally left this case of Cokes in the back, in the hatchback, in the sun and the heat in Texas, and all 24 soda cans exploded, like coated the car, just dripped and reeked and sticky. It was never the same again. Now that one, was, that one was our fault for sure. But, but then, then we, we met some people uh, who loved, they were so generous, they loved to give to campus missionaries. 
If this is you and you're a giver to campus missionaries, love you. Thank you for doing that. They found out our predicament, okay? They were fairly wealthy and they were very generous. And so they gave us their Lexus, their only Lexus. Uh, a few years old, it had leather seats and air conditioning. It had a CD player and a cassette tape player, right? I mean, it was amazing. And we kept that car for years and years and years because they did for us what we could not do for ourselves. They made the impossible possible. And do you know what we felt for them? At that moment, as you might imagine, we felt gratitude and love. And it made us not only love them, it made us want to take care of that car better to honor them because the car was holy to us. It was set aside for an uncommon purpose to tell a redemptive story. In the end, do you know what living a holy life is all about? Hmm? A life that would say yes to something God said yes to or a life that would say no to something God has said no to. What kind of life, what life is that really all about? Holy life is about this. It's all about love. It's all about love. It's all about love. Obeying God is all about love. A loving back the one who has done for you what you could never do for yourself. And that's why we gather with other Christians. Hmm? Because you love God. So we make space to maybe serve other people while we're generous with our money or our time or we read our Bibles or we fast or pray or whatever. We love him because he first loved us. We love our brother and sister. Peter says deeply from the heart. Why? Because he first loved us. We can embrace the holiness of God. Hear me. Because we have been embraced by a holy God. So let me ask you to do this. One question, then I'll close. Let me ask you to do this. I'm going to ask you to ask this question tonight. Maybe you go out of here, you're going to lunch, brunch, dinner, whatever, with family, even Father's Day kind of gatherings. Awesome. Ask this one question. Ask one question. Ask the people around you, does my life tell a different story? And if you're so bold, ask that and follow it. Well, how? How does my life tell a different story? Does my life tell a different story? Love to hear you. Sit back and listen, huh? And watch the conversation go from there. You may just be drawn up into maybe even living a better story. Do I live a better story? How does my life tell a different, better story? Amen. All right. Let me take a moment and pray for you and we'll be done. Father, I thank you for this today. This call, this pathway to handling life well. Life's hard. For some of us, life's really hard right now. In our marriage, it's super hard at our work. It's hard in our country. Hard in our community, life's hard. But you said we could be holy in all we do if we're set apart for you, Lord, as you give purpose and meaning to even the uncommon suffering, even the uncommon pain we go through, even when it doesn't appear to have a purpose. But we are still set apart for your purposes. And therefore, whatever we're going through is not uncommon. Help us to see that and live it out in a better way. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. For more info about how to get and stay connected to Mosaic Church, please visit us online at www.mosaicchurchaustin.com or download our app from your app store.